All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 23, for February 2021. The Philadelphia Sound, High Lit, Billy Paul, Grover Washington, Jr., Teddy Pendergrass. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 60 minutes or so to learn about some interesting folks interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. I think they have pretty amazing stories. Great musicians have always come from Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has always loved its musicians. From the Academy of Music on Broad Street to Peps on South Street and the Trocadero, you could pick and choose what music you wanted to hear. One of the high watermarks of Philadelphia music was in the 1970s when Gamble and Huff started Philadelphia International Music and stole the thunder from both Motown and Memphis. Two of their biggest stars were Billy Paul and Teddy Pendergrass. Another Philadelphian, Grover Washington Jr., became one of the top-selling jazz artists in history and is credited with laying the groundwork for what became known as smooth jazz. And where did you hear the latest sounds? On the radio, of course, where High Lit was one of the top names on the air for five decades. All four of these pioneers are buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Bala Kenwood. It's just a 10-minute drive from Laurel Hill Cemetery on Ridge Avenue in Philadelphia. In fact, three of them are a stone's throw from one another. I will talk about all of them today in this February 2021 version of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, The Philadelphia Sound. The history of Philadelphia music is in the sidewalks of a few blocks of South Broad Street, or as it prefers to be known, the Avenue of the Arts. You will see many familiar names on sidewalk plaques as you stroll in front of the Academy of Music and other historic buildings. Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Eugene Ormandy, Leopold Stokowski, Chubby Checker, and dozens more. Among them, you will find the names of four people interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Disc jockey High Lit, singers Billy Paul and Teddy Pendergrass, and sax player Grover Washington Jr. All four have added immensely to the richness of Philadelphia music. The last three are buried within a rather compact area of the Franconia section, not too far from the grave of civil rights activist C. Dolores Tucker. I'm going to start with High Lit, one of several radio personalities who introduced Philadelphia to rock and roll.
Jocko Henderson, Jerry Blavitt, Joe Niagara, Georgie Woods, they all made a name for themselves on Philadelphia radio of the late 1950s and early 1960s. But High Lit was the one who at one point with his evening show on WIBG commanded more than 70% of the radio audience. An insane number both then and now. And much of his audience were youngsters under bedclothes as their fathers told them to turn off the damn radio and go to sleep. Lit, whose family moved from 5th and Rittner Streets to 46th and Osage Avenue when he was young, got started in the business in 1955. Now, as far as I can tell, he was not related to the Lit brothers of department store fame. Heisky, or Heisky O'Rooney McFowdy Ozoot, as he called himself, or Hyman Lit, as he was born in South Philadelphia in 1938, came of age with rock and roll in an era when disc jockeys talked like this. Beats, beards, Buddhist cats, big time spenders, money lenders, teetotalers, elbow benders. Hard callers, home run hitters, finger popping daddies and cool babysitters. Let's do it one more time. We're going uptown, downtown, cross town. Here, there, everywhere. It's Mama's Honeydew. High skill, Rooney, McFarlane, who's back on the scene with a wrecking machine. You come from the Delaware Valley, which is the dance capital of the world, baby. You know what you got to do right now. Don't walk. Get out on the floor and dance some more. Music from the soundtrack of your life. Mm. Outside the band Lit stations, WHAT, WRCV, WIBG, WDAS-FM, WPGR, WSNI, WOGL. These are the roll call of Philadelphia music. He would take you uptown, downtown, cross town, here, there, almost everywhere. His style was part Lord Buckley, part Slim Gallard. Now, I grew up around Chicago, and we had our own AM radio heroes, Dick Biondi, Mort Crowley, Larry Lujak. But I got to know Lit and his style in 1967 and 68, when I was stationed at Valley Forge General Hospital in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. In 1945, WHAT, Watt, was the first U.S. radio station to hire a full-time black announcer. The first to program a regular show featuring a black woman as host. The first station in the city to hire black newscasters. It was also the first in the nation to feature a black host of a daily talk show. But it was a very young, very white man who sat in front of the microphone at WHATAM in 1955. Hi everybody, my name is High Lit and I'm here to play some music for you. I don't even know what I'm going to play yet, but I'm going to play something. The boss told him only that he would not be spinning the sort of pop artists he and his friends were used to. Peggy Lee, Patti Page, Frank Sinatra, and so on. They brought me this pile of records that the other guy had been playing. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Frankie Lyman. Little did I know that I was sitting on a gold mine. While working at Watt AM, most of his listeners were initially black, but young white listeners started tuning in to what their black counterparts were digging, and rock and roll took off. High said, I developed my style by impersonating my listeners. They'd call me on the phone and say, Hey man, play that boss record by Fats Domino. And then I'd go on the air and say, Hey, here's that boss record by Fats Domino. 
Heilich shocked a lot of people at his first live show at the Philadelphia Arena at 46th and Market, which is right next door to where Dick Clark was hosting American Bandstand every day. Think of the scene from the Buddy Holly story when the crickets show up at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Lit walked out on stage with a 90% black audience and nobody believed it was really him. He was a quick study. He found himself in the middle of musical explosion like Alan Freed, Murray the K, and a handful of other disc jockeys around the country. His voice was honey. Think of the sugar bear for the honey crisp cereal commercials, but on speed. His glory was greatest in the late 1950s and early 1960s when he became one of the WIBG 99 Wibbage Good Guys. Lit was one of the first to spin Elvis's Hound Dog in Heartbreak Hotel. He brought the Beatles to Philadelphia for their first tour, slipping them in and out of town in a fish truck. He pushed the Rolling Stones. He took payola, saying later, I didn't know it was illegal. He put the first underground rock show on Philadelphia FM radio. He appeared in an absolutely horrid 1964 movie called Disco-Tech Holiday. It featured the Chiffons, Freddie Cannon, Peter and Gordon, many other B and C list performers. He was also the MC for many shows in the Philadelphia region by Elvis Presley, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones. In the 1960s, he hosted a dance party style show called Block Party on Philadelphia television station WCAU Channel 10 and also did a Rate the Record show on WNTA Channel 13 in New York. He later had shows called High Ski A Go Go and The High Lit Show, which ran for seven years on WKBS in Philadelphia. That show was also syndicated into other television markets around the country. WKBG Boston, WBHK San Francisco, WKBF Cleveland, and WKBD Detroit. Litt went through his ups and downs in the industry, along with a few marriages. He also had the distinction, on 15 August 1990, of launching the oldies format on WCAU 1210. Hi, this is High Lit. Welcome to Oldies 1210, he said, leading into Rock and Roll is Here to Stay. His signature tunes were Quarter to Three by Gary U.S. Bonds and the instrumental A Night with Daddy G by the Church Street Five. Then there was his competition with another Philly DJ, Jerry Blavitt. The Geeter with the Heater. I've never figured out what that actually means. Blavitt and Lit were in constant competition for lucrative sock hops and dances, especially when radio work started to dry up. Blavitt had many questionable friends in South Philadelphia. 
He was said to be a personal driver for crime boss Angelo Bruno and was assassinated in 1980. And a friend and middleman for Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo, another crime figure. In 1981, Blavitt was having dinner at a South Philadelphia Greek restaurant with Greek crime boss Steve Boras when Boras was gunned down by enemies. Rumors circulated in the early 90s that Blavitt had been upset about Lit getting some of the gigs that he thought should be his and that Blavitt had arranged for a hit. In July of 1995, High Lit and Jerry Blavitt sat down together on the WPVI television show AM Philadelphia with Wally Kennedy to straighten the matter out. High Lit opened the conversation by saying, So, Jerry, you're going to go out and start my car for me? The entire show is available on YouTube. It is well worth watching. Just search for, Did Jerry Blavitt Want High Lit Murdered? Late in his career, Litt spent 16 years with oldies radio station WOGL, despite being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. But he resigned from the station in 2005 as part of the settlement of an age discrimination lawsuit. He published a book called High Litt's Unbelievable Dictionary of Hip Words for Groovy People. Along with his son, he launched his own website and oldies radio show, which was broadcast over the Internet. In 1993, he got his plaque on the Philadelphia Walk of Fame. The same year that Jocko Henderson, Georgie Woods, Joe Niagara, and Jerry Blavitt got theirs, along with the Heath Brothers and Daryl Hall and John Oates. And he was inducted into the Broadcast Pioneers of Philadelphia Hall of Fame in 2003. On 4 November 2007, Litt had a fall at home and went to Lankanaw Hospital, where he had his knee drained. It's unclear what happened after that. But after a trip to Bryn Mawr Rehabilitation Hospital and then Paoli Hospital, Litt died of kidney failure on 17 November 2007. He was 73 years old. He is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, South Lawn Section, Lot 147. But anyone who heard him on the radio can never forget him. The name Paul Williams was already taken. There was a famous rhythm and blues saxophonist, Paul Williams. He was born in 1915. He'd made a name for himself with his recording of The Hucklebuck. Paul Williams, born 1 December 1934 in Philadelphia, decided shortly after becoming a professional singer in 1951 to take the name Billy Paul. He was just 16 years old, but he knew that he was a singer. He was playing at the Apollo in Harlem for six weeks as a warm-up act. And Paul Williams, the saxophonist, had played there many times. I have read that he changed his name because of another singer named Paul Williams. Now, there was a founding member and the first choreographer of The Temptations, Paul Williams, but he was born in 1939. So he would have been 12 in 1951. And then you're probably familiar with the singer-songwriter Paul Williams. He wrote Rainy Days and Mondays, We've Only Just Begun, Rainbow Connection, other hits. He was born in 1940, so he would have been 11 
at the time. And although you don't see it mentioned often, Paul did have a twin sister, Pauline. She died in Philadelphia in 1976. While still Paul Williams at age 11, he was featured on WPEN radio. Paul received formal vocal training at Temple University, West Philadelphia Music School, and the famed Granoff School of Music. The Granoff School had been founded by Ukrainian immigrant Isidore Granoff, 1901 to 2000, and was located in the Presser Building at 17th and Chestnut Street. Other Granoff students included Dizzy Gillespie, John Coltrane, Sonny Fortune. Although seldom talked about today, Granoff at its peak was the third largest music school in the country, behind only Juilliard School in New York and the Curtis Institute just a few blocks away. At age 16, Paul appeared at Club Harlem, 5530 Haverford Avenue in West Philadelphia. He was on the same bill as alto saxophonist Charlie Parker. Paul recalled, Bird told me if I kept struggling, I'd go a long way, and I've never forgotten his words. Billy Paul may be one of the few African-American performers of the 1950s and 60s who did not come out of the church. From the start of his career, his role models were jazz and pop singers. In later interviews, he admitted the voices that influenced him were Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Carmen McRae, Dinah Washington, and eventually Nina Simone, who was actually born the year before Billy was born, and who did not release her first album until 1959. Women influenced him more than men. He liked the way they expressed themselves, and he found it easier to imitate them since his voice was on the higher end of the baritone range. He did find himself admiring some male silky performers like Nat King Cole, Johnny Mathis, Sam Cooke, and especially Jesse Belvin, who died in a car crash in 1960. Billy soon became known through his performances on the underground musical circuit in Philadelphia, especially while he was underage. His popularity grew. It led to appearances in clubs and at college campuses. In fact, the night that he won a Grammy in 1973, he was performing at Wilberforce University in Ohio. The earliest newspaper article that I find about him is on 31 May 1952. There's a movie plus live entertainment at the Earl Theater at 11th and Market. A western entitled Outlaw Woman was playing with live music from Queen of the Jukeboxes, Dinah Washington, Wild Man of the Tenor Sax, Arnett Cobb with his orchestra, comedians Mantan Moreland and Bud Harris, rhythm dancer on skates, Harold King, and Philadelphia's singing Billy Paul, age 19. Somewhere along the way, he also sang with saxophonist John Coltrane. Paul formed a trio. He cut his first record, Why Am I, for Jubilee Records in 1952, along with a few other sides before he was drafted into the armed services in 1957. Billy ended up stationed with the Army in Germany, where he met Bing Crosby's son, Gary. They decided to start a jazz band, thinking that they might be able to avoid doing any really hard work. 
and they were really excited when Elvis Presley, who'd been drafted early in 1958, was assigned to their unit in Germany. But try as they might, they could not convince Elvis to join their band. He was having too much fun driving a Jeep around for his company commander, and he said he wanted to take a break from music. So Billy Paul and Gary Crosby started a group called the Jazz Blues Symphony Band for the 7th Army. The Army bigwigs loved it, and they sent them on a tour all around Germany to build goodwill between Germany and America. And out of that band came pianist Cedar Walton, tenor sax player Eddie Harris, alto sax player Leo Wright, trumpeter Don Ellis, who also did some of their charts, and several others, but no Elvis. Billy also did some boxing in the Army, something he had learned as an amateur while growing up in North Philadelphia. But one time, after he got hit really hard, he said from then on he would be a singer, not a boxer. After his honorable discharge, he continued doing regional gigs up and down the East Coast from New York to Washington, D.C., On the weekend of 7 October 1960, Paul was the lead performer at Club VPA, which was next door to the Uptown Theater. He was promoting his recent recording, Small Hotel. Also on the bill were Charles Jackson and his big show, promoting Come On and Love Me. And you could see Afro-Cuban dancers and comedians Stump and Stumpy. In 1959, he joined the New Dawn record label and was a brief stand-in with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. More about them later. But he left because, quote, I didn't want to dance. The gigs kept coming. When the Philadelphia chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, had a concert at the arena at 46th and Market on 23 April 1967, you could hear and see Dionne Warwick, Otis Redding and his orchestra, Red Fox, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, with the Billy Paul Trio last on the bill. Top tickets were $5.50 each. General admission was $3.50. And later that year, he was at the Cadillac Club at 3736 Germantown Avenue at Broad and Erie. He was the opening act for Al Gray and his All-Stars. Also mentioned on the bill is a 23-year-old guitarist from South Philadelphia named Pat Martino. It was here at the Cadillac Club that Paul met a young music entrepreneur named Kenny Gamble. Later in 1967, Billy produced his first Philly album for $365. It was called Feeling Good at the Cadillac Club. Despite what's implied in the name, the album was not live. It was essentially a recreation of his club act. He recorded at Philly's Virtue Studios at 1618 North Broad Street with just his jazz trio. Pianist arranger Stanley Johnson, drummer Norman Farrington, and bassist Bill Colick. The set includes jazz standards like Bluesette and That's Life, and several show tunes just in time, on a clear day you can see forever. And what is probably the high point of the album, the title song, Feeling Good, from the musical The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd. That had debuted on Broadway two years earlier. That was the same year that Nina Simone had recorded it and kind of made it her own. 
He also did a Bob Dylan tune. I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. You just kind of wasted my precious time. Don't think twice, it's all right. By now, Billy was approaching his mid-30s. He had married his teen crush, Blanche, who'd become his business partner, Blanche Williams, and they hoped the new album would finally put him on top. They delivered the LP, nearly complete, to Gamble. Now, before they started Philadelphia International, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff had tried their hand at a number of record labels, among them Excel and Gamble Records. Feeling Good would be just the second LP ever released on the Gamble label, following The Intruders Are Together from the vocal group that recorded Cowboys to Girls. In 1971, Gamble and Huff started Philadelphia International Records, and Billy Paul's album Going East was their first release. Again, a mix of pop, Jimmy Webb's This Is Your Life, soul, Gene McDaniels compared to what, which Paul's old army mate Eddie Harris had made a hit two years earlier with pianist Les McCann, and show tunes. There's a small hotel. Philly International followed this debut with albums by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, I Miss You, and the OJs, Backstabbers. But in late 1972, Gamble, Huff, and Paul all struck gold with the album 360 Degrees of Billy Paul and the monster hit, Me and Mrs. Jones. And shortly after his 38th birthday, his single went to number one on the pop and R&B charts and stayed for several weeks. It went on to sell more than two million copies and it was awarded double platinum status. Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones. We got a thing going on. At the time, Billy and Blanche were living in a small second floor apartment on 16th Street between Lombard and South. Now, Leon Huff told the story of writing the song a few years ago. He said, quote, Whenever I came to Philly from Camden to meet with Gamble, we would first have breakfast every morning at 10 a.m. at the same restaurant. And one morning, while we were having breakfast, a guy came into the restaurant. I recognized him from Camden. He went back outside to meet a woman getting out of a taxi cab. I told Gamble that woman isn't his wife, because I know the male character. So Gamble, with my collaboration, wrote the song the same way the two characters at the restaurant played it out. We wrote what we saw, this man coming to the same restaurant at the same time, meeting the same woman, sitting at the same table, and the woman playing the same song on the jukebox every time. We wrote the song for Billy. The 15th Annual Grammy Awards were divvied out on 3 March 1973. Candidates for Best Rhythm and Blues Vocal Performance Male were Joe Simon, Drowning in the Sea of Love, Curtis Mayfield, Freddie's Dead, 
Joe Tex, I gotcha. Ray Charles, what have they done to my song, Ma? And Billy Paul, me and Mrs. Jones. The announcement was read by Harry Nelson and Ringo Starr. And the winner was Billy Paul. Now he was getting booked. He was on double bills with Johnny Nash and Nancy Wilson, in addition to many on his own. In 1973, he toured Europe, and then he was invited to the Soul Session at the Newport in New York Festival. He was at Shea Stadium with Stevie Wonder, the Staple Singers, the Ramsey Lewis Trio, and the Grover Washington Quartet. And on 10 April 1977, Billy Paul Williams from North Philadelphia performed at Carnegie Hall. Many people feel that the follow-up to Mrs. Jones was the wrong song at the wrong time. It was another Gamble and Huff composition called Am I Black Enough For You? Its in-your-face title put off a lot of his audience, especially white folks, and most mainstream radio stations wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole for fear of alienating their audience. After that, he never again came close to the success of Mrs. Jones. When disco hit later in the 1970s, he was out of his element. He tried to return to his jazz and pop roots, but he was unsuccessful. He was now branded as a smooth soul singer. His recordings remained popular with black audiences despite further controversy over the title of a 1976 single, Let's Make a Baby. Although the lyrics had a strong black pride element in their reference to raising a child to, quote, walk around with his head held tall, end quote, the song's sexual content led some moral leaders, including the Reverend Jesse Jackson, to urge broadcasters to ban the disc. His career reemerged in the 1990s when DJs and rappers started championing Paul as a lost hero of black power. The Roots, Amir Questlove Thompson, reveres Paul. He compares him to Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder in terms of his music's importance. He called Paul, quote, one of the criminally unmentioned proprietors of socially conscious post-revolution 60s civil rights music, end quote. Like so many other singers, Paul thought that he had been cheated out of royalties by his former record company. And in the early 2000s, he sued Assorted Music, its owners, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, and Sony Music Entertainment. He had made 10 albums for the label between 1971 and 1980. In 2003, a jury deliberated for less than an hour and awarded Paul a half million dollars in unpaid royalties for his recording of Me and Mrs. Jones. 
Now, outside of music, Billy was a longtime civil and social rights advocate who pushed for changes in black communities in Philadelphia and beyond. There's a 1967 article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about a confrontation he had with newly appointed police commissioner Frank Rizzo. This was at a time when the N-word was still printed in the newspaper. He met with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and followed his work. Paul was also active with Jesse Jackson's Operation Breadbasket, and he attended the first Million Man March in Washington, D.C., His wife, Blanche, says that he was also a talented furniture restorer, along with being a great painter. He continued to be popular at festivals, both national and international, and kept up a busy schedule. In 2008, he was added to the Philadelphia Walk of Fame, the same year as Tammy Terrell. In 2009, a biographical film, Am I Black Enough for You?, directed by Goran Hugo Olsen, was released in Sweden, where he remained extremely popular. It got mixed reviews. Everything from, quote, an affectionate and thoughtful portrait of an artist, end quote, to, quote, a brain-curdling essay in docu-sycophancy, end quote. On 24 April 2016, Billy Paul died in Blackwood, New Jersey of pancreatic cancer. He was 81 years old and he is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Franconia section, lot 124. His wife of almost 50 years, Blanche Fazell Williams, who shared in both the good times and the lean times as his business partner, continues his legacy with the website billypaul.com. They had two children together. With tongue-in-cheek, Blanche's email address is to Mrs. Jones at dot net. Tenor saxophone players have a saying. You either sound like John Coltrane or you're trying to figure out how not to sound like him. Tenor saxophone player Grover Washington Jr. went down this pathway. Most non-jazz heads think that Grover Washington Jr. and John Coltrane might have three things in common. Number one, they played the same instruments, tenor and soprano saxophone. Number two, they're both known by one name, say Train or Grover, and everyone knows who you're talking about. Number three, they are heavily associated with Philadelphia. They have plaques on the Avenue of the Arts Walk of Fame. But Grover, father of smooth jazz, Washington Jr., has an acolyte of Coltrane? Now, Tom Lord's online jazz discography said that Grover's first recording, it wasn't, was backing organist Charles Erland on a 1970 disc called Living Black. It was recorded live for the Prestige label at the Key Club in Newark, New Jersey. 
It's a terrific example of late 60s soul jazz with a cooking rhythm section, responsive audience, and Grover gets to stretch out on several songs. Do yourself a favor. Go to YouTube, find the recording of Miles Davis's Milestones, Charles Erland album, Living Black. I'll play you a little segment here. Wait for Grover's entry at about 30 seconds. It may be worlds apart from what you remember from Mr. Magic or Wine Light, but it's not that far from Train's Sheets of Sound technique. Washington Jr. was born in Buffalo, New York on 12 December 1943. His mother, Lillian, was a church chorister. His father was a steel worker and an amateur saxophone player and a collector of jazz records. Music was everywhere in the home. The neighborhood was racially and ethnically diverse. At the age of eight, Grover Sr. gave Jr. a saxophone. He practiced seriously, and when he could get away with it, he would sneak into clubs along the Michigan Strip, like the Horseshoe Strip, Moonglow, and Little Harlem, so he could see famous Buffalo blues and jazz musicians and traveling musicians. Washington's two younger brothers, Michael and Darrell, were also involved in music. In 1950s, the late 1950s, Philadelphia organist Trudy Pitts, 1932 to 2010, and her husband, drummer Bill Mr. C. Carney, 1925 to 2017, were on the organ circuit at a place in Buffalo called the Pine Grill. Grover Jr., then in his teens, was introduced to them by Grover Sr. He sat in and apparently impressed them because they became lifelong friends. As a teenager, he was performing in local clubs with singing groups and blues bands. Buffalo's music unions were still racially segregated at the time, and Washington also sat in with big bands at the Black Union Halls two nights a week. In school, he received a more formal education, which included classical music, and he played in high school bands. Washington's mother taught him to have high standards and to practice even when the lessons seemed boring and simplistic. She told him, it may be twinkle twinkle little star, but make it the most beautiful twinkle twinkle little star you possibly can. He also took evening classes at the Wurlitzer School of Music. Grover's first jazz teacher was saxophonist and trumpeter Elvin Shepard, who taught him how to play the piano so he could decipher harmonically complex solos. He was eager to explore a career in music, so he took summer classes throughout high school in order to graduate early. After graduation, Grover left Buffalo to join three musician friends. They toured as the Four Clefts, The Clefts disbanded in 1963, and Washington joined organist Keith McAllister and drummer Bobby Altamont to form the Mark III Trio out of Mansfield, Ohio. The trio made a live recording in 1964 in Mansfield's Snow Trails Ski Lodge, so Let's Ska at the Ski Lodge 
was actually Grover Washington's first recording. He was 21 years old. He also worked with saxophonist Rusty Bryant, Bobby Miller, and Hank Marr. In 1965, Washington was drafted into the U.S. Army and stationed at Fort Dix, New Jersey. He was good enough to be tapped for the 19th Army Band, which kept him from being shipped out to Vietnam. This introduced him to fellow bandmate and drummer Billy Cobham. They became fast friends. Washington and Cobham would head to clubs in New York and Philadelphia while on weekend pass and did a lot of freelancing. In November 1966, Washington was playing with the Bill Walker Organ Trio at the Roadside Inn, 10 miles out of Philadelphia, when he met Christine Bittner, a 23-year-old editorial assistant from Philadelphia. They married on 29 December 1967 at the Vine Memorial Baptist Church, 57th and Vine Street in Philadelphia. The Washingtons settled into Philadelphia as their new home. For the next year, Washington backed Don Gardner and his sonotones. Gardner, 1931 to 2018, was a Philadelphia rhythm and blues singer who had toured the Chitlin circuit since the mid-1950s. Richard Groove Holmes had been his organist for many years. Grover started touring with Philadelphia organist Charles Erland and was with him in Newark, New Jersey on 17 September 1970 when the album Living Black was recorded live at the Key Club. Ten weeks later in New York, he recorded with guitarist Ivan Boogaloo Joe Jones on the album No Way. And two weeks after that, on 7 December, he joined organist Leon Spencer Jr. with Melvin Sparks on guitar and Idris Muhammad on drums for an album called Sneak Preview, also recorded in New York. And then when Melvin Sparks recorded his album Spark Plug in March 1971, Grover was on tenor sax. His first big break probably came with organist Johnny Hammond Smith in 1971. In April, they recorded the album What's Going On for the Prestige label. But in June, at Rudy Van Gelder's studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, Smith was the first artist to record for the newly formed Kudu label, a soulful offshoot of the CTI label founded by longtime producer Creed Taylor. And Grover was with him. Now, Creed Taylor had a great ear for music and a very great idea of what sold. His CTI records, with their stunning covers, featured some of the biggest names of the day with lush productions. Hubert Laws, Joe Farrell, Freddie Hubbard, Stanley Turrentine, George Benson, Astrid Gilberto. A lot of jazz purists cried that these masters were selling out. But the truth is, they sounded great and they made money. After all, even Charlie Parker had recorded with strings, as had Billie Holiday and Ben Webster, and Sarah Vaughan had a string of pop records she made throughout the 1950s and 60s that were jukebox hits. The Johnny Hammond album Breakout found Grover reunited with his old army buddy Billy Cobham on drums, along with Hank Crawford on alto sax and Eric Gale on guitar. Creed Taylor got what he wanted for a soul jazz album, and it started selling immediately. Taylor loved Washington's sound and vowed to use him more. Grover's second big break came in January 1972. 
he was signed to do a session as part of the background horns for a new Hank Crawford album. But Crawford was unable to keep the date. Creed Taylor did not want to waste the arrangements and the studio time, so he signed Washington to an artist contract and recorded him as lead, again at the Van Gelder Studios. The result was Inner City Blues, Washington's debut solo album. Released in 1972, the album received both critical acclaim and commercial success. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies, a staggering number for a jazz album. That was followed by All the King's Horses in 1972 and Soul Box in 1973. By now, Grover was also recording alto and soprano saxophones. Grover's fourth album, Mr. Magic, exploded onto the scene in February 1975. It topped both the jazz and the soul charts, and it peaked at number 10 on the pop charts. It sold more than half a million copies. Grover was suddenly a star, and albums followed at a regular clip. His most successful and perhaps best-known album was Wine Light, which included the single Just the Two of Us, a duet with Bill Withers. stayed on Billboard's pop charts for nearly two years and sold more than two million copies. His career as a smooth jazz artist was solidified. The album won the 1981 Grammy Award for Best Jazz Fusion Album and earned Washington a Grammy Award certificate as its producer. Grover was not resting on his laurels. Between 1980 and 1983, he attended the College of Music at Temple University, where he took doctoral-level courses in music theory and composition. Grover Washington, Jr. was now playing to sold-out concerts all over the world. But at home in Philadelphia, you were more likely to run into him at the grocery store or mowing his lawn or attending a game of his beloved Philadelphia 76ers, where he often played the national anthem. He and Julius Irving became good friends and worldwide symbols for the city of brotherly love. In 1988, Grover played a Julius Irving night at the Spectrum. He didn't act famous. He regularly performed and met with students at many elementary, junior, and senior high schools, colleges, and universities. He visited local high schools as part of the Grammy in the Schools program and conducted master classes and seminars at all grade levels. His public service extended beyond the classroom. He participated in educational panels and in programs for prisons, the Special Olympics, the United Negro College Fund, Variety Club, and community festivals and events. In 1982, he was named Goodwill Ambassador for Philadelphia's 300th birthday. 
Through his and Christine's Chestnut Hill Company, G-Man Productions, he produced the first three albums recorded by Pieces of a Dream, a Philadelphia-based trio that he is credited with discovering. He also produced an album for singer Gene Carn and collaborated with Ralph McDonald, Nancy Wilson, Grady Tate, Phyllis Hyman, Bobby McFerrin, Kenny Burrell, B.B. King, Ramsey Lewis, and Herbie Hancock. In 1992, he got his plaque on the Avenue of the Arts Walk of Fame, an honor shared that year with early Philadelphia rockers Danny and the Juniors and Lee Andrews and the Hearts and South Philadelphia jazz guitarist Eddie Lang, among a few others. The next January, he played at President Bill Clinton's first inauguration and again at Clinton's 50th birthday party in 1996. Grover was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1999, but he seemed to be dealing with it well. On Friday, 17 December 1999, he recorded a few songs for a segment of CBS's Saturday Early Show in New York City. After the set, he collapsed in his dressing room and was rushed to St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center on West 59th Street, where he was pronounced dead of an apparent heart attack. His funeral service was three days before Christmas at Bright Hope Baptist Church at North 12th Street and Cecil B. Moore. Trudy Pitts and Mr. C. were there, as were Branford Marsalis and Joshua Redman. Patti LaBelle sang the Lord's Prayer, and Dr. J. offered a eulogy. Grover was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Franconia Section, Lot 223. Philadelphia remembers Grover today with a three-story high mural at Diamond, visible to anyone driving south on Broad Street. The Grover Washington Junior Middle School is located at 201 East Alney, and the Grover Washington Junior Protect the Dream Foundation was formed after his death to support music education for young people. His papers are in the archives of Temple University in Philadelphia. Thirteen of his albums have reached the number one spot on the jazz charts, while another four reached number two. I think it is safe to say that Grover Washington Jr. was one of the most popular jazz musicians of all time. Nineteen fifty-four was a year of transition in vocal music, from the adult-oriented rhythm and blues to amateurish street corner doo-wop. Doo-wop was an urban North sound that has been romanticized as having been born on the street corner. In truth, these teenagers' first musical experiences were in the home or the church. Most of these groups started during high school. The members were typical teenagers, socially awkward and shy, usually trying to impress girls. They formed groups of four to six individuals where each knew their role and part within the group. Now, like most teenagers, they did what made them happy at the moment and were often irresponsible. 
They knew very little about the world around them, and even the most talented groups were easily led into making bad decisions. They overly trusted their contracts to their managers and record companies. They believed the label owner when he told them, I'll put my name on the label as composer because it will be more recognizable to the DJs. And so they lost royalties. They agreed to be paid by the recording session rather than by the number of records sold. The contracts they signed allowed the record companies to pay studio and promotional costs out of artists' royalties and gave the companies rights to the original songs. This is the world where in 1954, a Philadelphia group known as the Charlemagnes changed its name to the Blue Notes, with a lineup of lead singer Franklin Peeker, Bernard Williams, Roosevelt Brody, Jesse Gillis Jr., and Harold Melvin. The group recorded for several labels without success until 1960, when the single My Hero was a minor hit for Value Records, then in 1965, Get Out and Let Me Cry for Lander Records. The group's lineup changed frequently. Bernard Wilson left the act to start a group called The Original Blue Notes, and Harold Melvin brought in a new lead singer, John Atkins, and a drummer named Teddy Pendergrass from a group called The Cadillacs. Theodore DeReese Pendergrass Jr. was born on 26 March 1950 in Kings Tree, South Carolina. He moved to 8th Street in North Philadelphia as an infant with his mother, Ida Pendergrass. He grew up steeped in gospel, doo-wop, and soul music. His father, Jesse, disappeared when Teddy was young. He was murdered in 1962. When Teddy was two years old, he stood on a chair to sing at a storefront holiness church, and with his mother's encouragement, he often attended church seven days a week. Pendergrass was ordained as a minister at the age of 10. Teddy would often accompany his mother to her job at a local club, Ciola's, on Pike Street near 5th and the Boulevard, where he watched Bobby Darren, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and many other entertainers. And when he was a teenager, his mother gave him a set of drums, and he taught himself to play. He decided on a musical calling after seeing soul singer Jackie Wilson perform at the Uptown Theater. Teddy dropped out of Thomas Edison High School in the 11th grade and entered the music business full-time. He worked with local R&B and doo-wop groups, including the Cadillacs, not the New York group that had a series of hits in the late 1950s, but a Philadelphia group. In 1968, he joined Little Royal and the Swingmasters, who had been holding auditions at a club where Teddy worked as a waiter. In 1969, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes recruited Teddy Pendergrass as the drummer for their backing band. After touring widely, the Blue Notes signed with Gamble and Huff's pre-disco Philadelphia International record label in 1971. Huff said he first noticed Pendergrass while they were preparing for a Blue Notes recording session when Teddy was still the band's drummer. Huff said, quote, We was just messing around in the rehearsal room. I heard that voice, and my ears perked up. That rich baritone voice was just ringing through. As we heard earlier in this podcast, Philadelphia International released its first album, Going East, by Billy Paul in 1971. 
The second album was released in 1972. It was I Miss You by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. By this time, John Atkins had left the group and Teddy Pendergrass, age 22, was the lead singer. Gamble and Huff had written If You Don't Know Me By Now in 1972 for LaBelle, a trio led by Patti LaBelle, but they never recorded it. Gamble and Huff offered it to Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and it was released in September 1972. It topped the United States R&B charts and peaked at number three on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Eventually, it sold more than two million copies. This massive hit was followed by The Love I Lost in 1973 and Bad Luck and Wake Up Everybody, both in 1975. The lead singer was Teddy Pendergrass, but you had to look hard for his name on the records. Everyone assumed that the lead singer of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes was Harold Melvin. For this and other reasons, there was increasing friction between Mr. Pendergrass and Mr. Melvin. Harold Melvin took a healthy percentage of their earnings. While on the road, Melvin stayed at high-end hotels, while the Blue Notes were relegated to cheap dwellings. In October 1975, Teddy Pendergrass had enough. He quit Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and struck out on his own as a solo artist. He was an immediate success. His first solo album, Teddy Pendergrass, released in 1977, sold more than a million copies, as did the two that followed, Life is a Song Worth Singing in 1978 and Teddy in 1979. A concert album, Teddy Live Coast to Coast, sold more than a half a million copies, followed by another million seller, TP, in 1980 and It's Time for Love in 1981. Teddy Pendergrass became the first black male singer to record five consecutive multi-platinum albums as well as Grammy nominations and sold-out tours. His singles were fixtures on the R&B Top 10. Pendergrass underwent an early tragedy when his manager and girlfriend, Tesmaya Taz Lang, was shot to death on the doorstep of her home on Allen's Lane near Green Street in April 1977, two months before his first solo album was released. The murder remains unsolved. Teddy Pendergrass's concerts became legendary. Women were crazy for him. His tie came off after the first 15 minutes. Off with the suit coat. Off with the perspiration-soaked white shirt. Down to the tank top t-shirt and streams of sweat. He was said to lose up to five pounds in sweat at each performance. Sweaty Teddy had the whole routine downed. The baritone found his trademark with smoochy, slow, sensual jams, including I Don't Love You Anymore, 
love TKO, close the door and turn off the lights, performed before ladies-only audiences who would throw flowers, phone numbers, and underwear at the stage. Women were given chocolate lollipops to lick during the performance. Teddy was a more aggressive version of Al Green and Marvin Gaye, but the lyrics of his songs never promised more than a back rub. He said in interviews, quote, I'm not an X-rated singer. I don't take all my clothes off. I've got a style the ladies like, but what's wrong with that? Why God has chosen to bless me the way he has is a mystery. I don't presume to question. I just thank him. There's nothing ungodly about sex. In fact, finding God is something like an orgasm. God speaks to my people through entertainers. End quote. Gamble and Huff continued to write his hits and produce his albums for Philadelphia International. Teddy Bear Productions, the singer's office, overlooks Center City from a 22nd floor suite in the 2400 Chestnut Street complex. He had a $600,000 34-room mansion on 13 acres in Gladwin, where neighbors considered him a reclusive nouveau riche who gave wild parties, but otherwise sheltered behind iron gates with guard dogs. He was at the peak of his career. On 18 March 1982, everything changed for the chocolate teddy bear. Pendergrass was southbound on Lincoln Drive near Rittenhouse Street in Germantown at 1.30 in the morning, returning from a nightclub to his home in his green Rolls-Royce Silver Spirit. He lost control of the car and sideswiped the center divider, then his car careened into the oncoming lane and hit two trees. As the rolls jumped the curb, Teddy's head hit the roof of the car twice. The second impact broke his neck. Pendergrass and his passenger were trapped in the wreckage for 45 minutes. While the passenger was extricated and walked away with minor injuries, Pendergrass' fifth and sixth cervical vertebrae were shattered, as was his spinal cord. He was a week shy of his 32nd birthday, and he would never walk again. Teddy and his passenger were initially taken to Germantown Hospital, and when the extent of his injury was recognized, he was transferred to Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, the regional spinal cord injury center for the Delaware Valley. He was placed in traction and under heavy guard. A friend tried to visit him and gave up, saying, quote, The woman down there said she'd heard from two Diana Rosses, 25 fiancés, and 12 brothers and sisters, all trying to get through, end quote. And on that day, as Teddy went to surgery for spinal stabilization, Sigma Sound Studio at 212 North 12th Street was busy with a recording session for another Philadelphia superstar, Grover Washington Jr. Rumors about the cause of the crash flew, but Pendergrass remained focused on his recovery and his music, and his passenger kept quiet for 30 years. 
She was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey in 2012. Tanika Watson, a former sex worker, then a nightclub entertainer and model, had accepted a ride from Teddy. Tanika had undergone gender confirmation surgery five years earlier, but says she doesn't even think that Teddy knew about that. She talks of that night. First, the car started speeding up real fast, and I was wondering, was he driving fast? But he wasn't. It was out of control. And then I noticed he was struggling with the wheel, and all of a sudden I heard this great big bang. Watson was relatively unhurt. She had contusions and a chipped tooth. So she boarded the ambulance with Pendergrass and accompanied him to the hospital. She didn't stay, however, and only learned about Pendergrass paralysis when it was reported in the newspapers. Her story is beyond the scope of this podcast, but can be found online. In 1984, Teddy went back to the studio and recorded a song called Hold Me with an 18-year-old whose voice he really liked named Whitney Houston. It made the top five on the R&B charts. Teddy's triumphant return to live performance took place in Philadelphia on 13 July 1985. He was introduced by Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson and performed in his wheelchair in front of 100,000 people at Live Aid, the worldwide concert event held in his hometown at JFK Stadium to raise funds for the Ethiopian famine disaster. It was broadcast around the world via one of the largest satellite link-ups of all time and seen by about 40% of the Earth's population, an estimated 1.5 billion people. Following Live Aid, Teddy returned to regular recording and live performances. He scored his first number one R&B single in nearly a decade when the song Joy from his album of the same name was released in 1988. In June 1987, Teddy married former Philodenko dancer Karen Still, who had also danced in his shows. They divorced in 2002. In the spring of 2006, Pendergrass met Joan Williams, a business leader, humanitarian, and job skill trainer at New Balance Athletic Shoe Company. He proposed to her after four months, and they married in a private ceremony, Easter Sunday, 2008. In the 1990s, Teddy established the Teddy Pendergrass Alliance based on his belief in the importance of achieving the best quality of life for himself and others who have survived spinal cord injuries. He said, throughout my career, people provided me with opportunities. The Alliance is my way of doing the same for others. I believe that with opportunities, 
people can make great achievements. We're not going to focus on getting people things like a wheelchair or transportation. We want to work with people who are ready to buckle down and go to school with the goal of getting a job that enables them to live a full life. In June 2009, Benegrass underwent successful surgery for colon cancer and returned home to recover. But a few weeks later, he returned to the hospital with respiratory issues. After seven months, he died of respiratory failure on 13 January 2010 at Bryn Mawr Hospital in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. He was 59 years old and survived by his wife, two sons, a daughter, and nine grandchildren. His body was interred in the Franconia section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballakinwood, Pennsylvania. In 2019, BBC Films made a documentary on Pendergrass's life titled If You Don't Know Me. It was released on Showtime. The Teddy and Joan Pendergrass Foundation continues its work for people with spinal cord injuries. All the things that we've been through You should understand Like I understand you Now, baby, I know the difference between right and wrong. I ain't gonna do nothing to upset our happy home. Next time in the March 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's Women Leaders for Women History Month. Elizabeth McBride, neuropsychologist and president of Bryn Mawr College for 28 years. Christine Wetherill-Stevens, heir to the Pittsburgh paint fortune, who used her wealth to build the Hollywood Bowl. Bernice Winterstein, president of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And Ruth Enney, who decided it was too expensive to hire an actress for TV ads for her company, so she became Mama Dietz, beloved spokesperson for Dietz and Watson, delicatessen meats known and loved by all Philadelphians. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheel variety. 
Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again, but with limited participants who are willing to follow CDC recommendations for masks. And we still have frequent pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. There is more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours that I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tour Number 1 gives you an overview. And All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories as a video podcast number one. I did on the illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And last month's podcast on ornithologists and entomologists is also now available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep your body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Now, normally, I would invite you to stick around for my references, but everything I told you today came from either Internet sources or newspapers contemporaneous with the people. So there's really nothing special for you to go hunting. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.